0: gang. Welcome to the penultimate episode of the season of Brass Taxes. I'm Caroline Craighead. If you're just joining us, don't worry. We've got a whole slew of episodes before this one and one more after this one that you can check out. Like I do every week, I want to remind you that Brass Taxes is here to help you get your taxes done. Go to BrassTaxes.com to get started and use the code POD25 to get a $25 discount as a new client and friend of the pod. Today, Russ had a chance to interview Kevin Roos, Kevin is a technology columnist for The New York Times, whose new book is Future Proof, Nine Rules for Humans in the Age of Automation. Kevin is also a brass taxes client, and this interview took place right after he minted and sold, through an auction, the very first NFT of a New York Times article. I think the first NFT of any article. Russ and Kevin talk a lot about NFTs in the interview we're about to hear, and if you don't know what that is, don't worry, nobody does. Okay, that's not true. But it is a pretty new technology that's just now breaking into mainstream consciousness. So very understandable if this is the first time you're hearing about it. Just to orient you, NFT stands for non-fungible token. Non-fungible means that it's unique and can't be substituted. Like a dollar bill is fungible. Any one bill is as good as another. It has the same value. But a non-fungible token has a unique value. It's imbued with a unreplicatable quality. Uh, The T is for token because this is cryptocurrency blockchain shit, which I love to nerd out about, but I'm going to sit back and let Russ and Kevin take it from here.
1: Uh, I don't even know where to start with the NFT stuff. This was not uh, initially on our question list. And then... uh, (laughs) Just yeah, just as a quick recap, uh Kevin just auctioned off uh, an nft of his article that he wrote about nfts for the New York Times. It's the first New York Times article ever uh, auctioned off, and he I guess it was bought with ethereum was the only way to buy it and uh had no idea what exactly was going to happen but was going to get a story out of it either way and ended up selling for 350 ethereum which is around 557 thousand dollars uh also just uh came out his book future proof which is excellent i recommend to everybody uh do you want to just talk a little bit about what i don't know where where where's your thinking with nfts
2: well i i have some immediate thoughts and some longer term thoughts um and I, i think i emailed you that i was going to do this because you uh you are, uh, are my, my accounting guru and, uh, said, how badly am I going to like screw up my taxes on this? And, uh, cause what I had to do essentially was like sell the NFT, get the Ethereum and then somehow get the Ethereum to this charity, um, at the New York times called the neediest cases fund, um, without booking it as income because like, you know, uh, I guess it's now up to $600,000 or something because the Ethereum price has has sort of fluctuated. Yeah, so I was like,
1: going to ask about that as well. Like, did you sell immediately or does it now make sense to like, well, let's keep you know, no, Ethereum. it's sitting in
2: my account, yeah. and actually, the longer it takes for me to figure out how to do this, the more money the, the more money you're gonna give. Yeah, <laughs> so, so I'm like, I'm like trying to figure out how to do this now because I, I, you know, I not to get too deep in the weeds of the accounting stuff. We could talk about that in another in another conversation, but like, it's incredibly complicated because what you're doing when you sell an NFT is exchanging a token for cryptocurrency, which is theoretically a sort of taxable event. And then you have to figure out, if you're me, you have to figure out, like, how do I get this, this Ethereum to this nonprofit? Um, and, like, they're, I had to explain it to, to them because they were like, what the heck is this? And we like, you know, that you're giving us money, but, like, we have no idea what you're talking about, so please just, like, tell us what to do to get this money. So um, so I've been, like, on on the phone with a lot of lawyers and and accountants in the past few, uh, few days trying to sort this all out. But I, I think the... I think you're right that this is like, it's, it's an interesting technology. I mean, the way it was explained to me is that essentially there is sort of this quality that we call scarcity that gives offline things their value. So, you know the Mona Lisa is valuable because there's one of them, um, and there are obviously millions of prints and copies and keychains and you know pictures and like renderings of of the Mona Lisa, but there's one original, and we know which one that is, and so that's why people come from all over the world to see it and pay lots of money. And that's why it's priceless. Um, on the internet, there is no, you know, there was no real way to create scarcity. Um, you know you could download a file make a million copies and there was no way to know which of those million and one copies was the original one you could create infinite lossless copies of anything which made it really hard for you know artists and uh, musicians and other creative people who wanted to sort of adopt the principles of offline scarcity in their online work um, So that's where sort of this blockchain technology came in, and essentially it allows you to sort of cryptographically designate one particular file as like the original file from which all subsequent copies are derived. Um, And so that technology has really made it possible to do what artists have been doing offline for millennia, which is like selling things to collectors who care about having, you know, the first copy of Ulysses or the first, you know, Renoir or whatever. And you can now do that with with digital creations, too. So it's it's a powerful technology right now. It's still like kind of clunky, like there's these gas fees that you have to pay, which is like sort of a congestion tax for Ethereum. Um, So it's like not cheap to sell an NFT, but. I think it's really interesting as sort of just another way that creators can make money selling stuff on the internet.
1: Um, So what you sold was a PNG of the article you wrote, is that correct? So PNG is like a, just a picture format, like a JPEG or a TIFF. Um,
2: Yeah, it was literally just a, a 14 megabyte image that we created out of the column once it had been written and edited and typeset. We just like almost literally like took a screenshot and um and sold that and so
1: and and so you as the creator label it this is this is the nft i'm the create like you can endow that um as the writer um is that correct and then you i'm almost trying to get at the core of like is it you know I think a lot of the confusion and or maybe weirdness of it is is much more normal than I realize it's just transferring it to this other format is a little confusing like could like because you did point out that the New York Times maintains the license to their name, and you know I assume the New York Times can reprint that as much as they want. You don't own. You know, you don't now need to license it from whoever bought your NFT. So what they bought is the the nexus of this thing that is now ubiquitous.
2: Right. They bought sort of like the master recording. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like it's the exact same as all the other recordings, if you just listen to it. But they know and other people know, importantly, that that was the original NFT version that was sold. So yeah, they don't own copyright. They don't own, I mean, it's, it's really like the legal implications of this are really interesting because technically I could go sell a Mickey Mouse NFT, you know, <laughs> without Disney's permission. And like their lawyers would probably have some feelings on that. Um, but right now it's sort of the Wild West.
1: It's very normal that the only reason it's valuable is because people want it. Like, just the same as, like, the U.S. dollar has no inherent value. Neither does the first edition of Ulysses has no more inherent value than if you like the book Ulysses. Um, and um, do you just see it as an extension of that? Or why does it—are are we just having trouble grasping some of the digitization? Yeah, I mean, I think
2: what I've landed on is that, like, NFTs are irrational, but in the same way that, like, all— our collection yeah, yeah. Is, is irrational. Like, yeah. I have these little, like, cardboard rectangles with pictures of basketball players on them from when I was a little kid. And, like, that's really dumb. Uh, but I have thousands of them sitting in a box in my mom's basement somewhere. And some of them might be worth more than others just because we've decided that these things have value.
1: That's funny. That's what you collected. I was going to ask what you collected.
2: I collected cards, I collected pogs, I collected. I never did Beanie Babies. Um what else was Oh, Magic the Gathering cards. I was really cool as you can tell. I uh you know had a lot of dates uh in middle school. <laughs> Just to like make the last serious point about NFTs like I think there is something that is that collectors think is better about this because it's like with an autograph with, you know, a work of art like you can counterfeit those like people do that all the time and it's part of the risk you take as a collector is like you know someone could have sold you like a fake Michael Jordan rookie card Um, but what NFTs have that have going for them is this sort of you know sort of perpetual universally accessible public uh, permanent record of ownership and like can't fake it can't counterfeit it. Um, it is the, the one and and true version of that thing.
1: I think one of the things that keeps coming to me and almost, uh, I think probably is the, 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 the thorn in my mind about them is that it's so abstract that to me, it's just evidence of rampant income inequality that like people are desperately looking for where they could put their money for it to grow um and it's just getting less and less closely related to like enough everyone having food and shelter i think that's what irks me about it but i actually like the technology and the ideas of people being able to make money on you know the things they're creating and for the clarity of that it is a blockchain and not open to forgeries and and stuff like that um uh, yeah, any—I I don't actually know that that's accurate. I think it's just kind of my uh, sort of layman's view of of these things. That no, are changing. I, I think
2: that's right. I think you know, I, there was a moment on uh, last Thursday when we were having the uh, the last minutes of the NFT auction, and like um, I was slacking with some colleagues, and um, we were just like watching this thing go up and up and up, and it went from like. $30,000 to $60,000 to $90,000 to $120,000. And like, there was a certain point at which I just typed, like, I think I just became a socialist because <laughs> I was like, <laughs> like the top marginal tax rate needs to be 99.9% because yeah. this is ridiculous. Like no one should spend this much yes. money on a PNG file.
1: Yeah. Um, it, uh, yeah. Can you, can you expand on that a little bit? Cause I feel the same way. Like why, oh uh, what about the enormity of the money getting spent makes you say the top tax bracket should just be, you know, 99.9%
2: because it doesn't matter? I mean, like, $600,000 is a ton of money. And, like, that could pay, you know, an entire newsroom's journalist's worth of salaries for, you know, a year. And not a, a small newsroom, but, like, it's, um, you know, there's the thing I'm, I'm trying to sort of convince myself of is that it's no more irrational than the traditional art market. You know, if you go to Art Basel or like any other art show, like you'll see, you know, collectors spending millions of dollars on like something that, you know, and like the, the reaction is always like my kid could have done that. Like it's just a bunch of splotches of paint, but like it's the right artists splotches of paint. And so it's suddenly worth you know, $20 million or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I think there is an element of rational irrational behavior to it. I think there is an element of income inequality to it. I mean, a lot of the people who are collecting NFTs are original sort of early adopters of crypto. Mm-hmm. And so they just have all this crypto sitting around and it's yeah. just funny money to them. And, you know, they're true believers, so they're not going to convert it into dollars because that would be like essentially you know, giving up on the mission. Um, so they just want to spend things denominated in ETH and BTC. And they're like, hey, this sounds like I'm supporting something cool. And so, yeah, I, I interviewed a lot of the bidders because I was like just curious, like, what did you see in this? Like, why did you yeah, do yeah. this? And I, it was I, sort of, a, it was an interesting mix.
1: I, I imagine some of the bidders, I, I felt like just... Most like the crossover into legitimacy and the pub, uh, not publicity, but publicness of the event was attractive to some of the bidders. Was that the case? What you who you talked to?
2: Yeah, there were some people who said, you know, I think up to a certain price point, it actually like was a savvy investment for mm-hmm. some people because essentially what i what i'd packaged with the nft was not only would you get this token but you would get featured in a follow-up column like if you right. bought the thing i would print your name and an image of your choice in the new york times and like yeah. so essentially it was like cheap ad space mm-hmm. for certain Segment of buyers, and I had a couple people tell me, "Look, like I wanted to promote myself in the New York Times, so I thought like this is cheaper than buying an ad, so I'm just going to do this." Yeah. But at a certain point, obviously, that logic went out the window. Um,
1: and w- do you have a do you have a guesstimate of what at what price that logic went? Oh, out I don't window? know. I mean,
2: whatever we whatever charge the price for, a is for a quarter page ad or something. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know. Maybe that's twenty five thousand dollars or something. Um. Yeah. But yeah, it's, and then beyond that, it was sort of a mixture of like people who are NFT true believers and were basically like, I think that this, there, there were there were speculators. Uh, it was the first category. People who thought like, this was going to become more valuable in the future. And one collector told me like, NFT people love firsts. So like, this was the first New York Times NFT. And if NFTs like become huge, it's going to be like, you know, the first edition of Ulysses or whatever. Um, And so I want to own that because I think I can resell it from more down the road. And then there were people who are sort of like, they just liked that the New York Times was paying attention to NFTs and taking it seriously. And it was almost sort of like a, you know, a thank you for like legitimizing our pursuit, our hobby, our investments. Because A, I think like writing about this stuff in the New York Times, having this very public auction sort of, Adds some legitimacy to the whole ecosystem, which then, if more people get into it because of that, then the prices of crypto assets, including other nFTs that these collectors might own, go up yeah um,
1: yeah. i feel I, I felt like a lot of it was that whoever bought this for this much then like notches up the market for nFTs and adds legitimacy the The, the part that stuck out to me as really smart. I was like, nice one, Kevin, was where you uh, said, like, this will be forever the first article of the New York Times that was sold by NFT. And, like, you just put your, you know, all of a sudden, like, you're buying a part of a 100 and, you know, whatever year tradition. Um, Is there a conversation now at the New York Times of, like, is there an NFT for every article? Like, I felt like I was like, did Kevin just change the print industry? (laughs) Like, did he just change newspapers?
2: Like, yeah i mean i don't i don't think i i'm at liberty to say much but there are discussions happening about like what the strategy should be mm-hmm. um if we should do this more broadly um i'm about to sell uh my book as an nft too so that's exciting that will be the first book from a major american publisher um sold as an nft so stay tuned for that the benefit and the curse of writing about this stuff in the new york times is you just get all kinds of people coming out of the woodwork mm-hmm. to offer their like services so i've got like some crypto charities that are you know offering help processing it and i just need to sit down and like probably with you and figure out like how i do this without completely screwing myself
1: yeah yeah we could look at a couple yeah we have we have two ideas where uh you know you won't get hit with uh like taxes you're you're you know it, it's it was it was a very interesting question of like how can i get all this money and give it all away and not pay immense taxes in the process of just being the flow through person
2: um, right
1: <laughs> and we've had more and more of those especially around like the black lives matter movement of people just being like hey i want to support people and so i collected a bunch of money or like for uh you know i had a client um collecting money for the when the hurricane in Puerto Rico came, and it was just like sh- suddenly you have a lot of money moving through your account that, like, you're not planning on, you're just collecting to give away. And it's just, it's a, it's just an odd circumstance, uh, you know, especially related to the crowdfunding or just the idea, like, it's almost counter to American ideas that, like, you got a bunch of money and it's like, no, I'm giving away the exact same amount. <laughs> like, the next day, yep. or whatever, is just and a how do strange they do idea. that?
2: Like, I, like I imagine, I you know, I've all, I've seen the like Venmo fundraiser for this you know cause, mm-hmm. and then somebody ends up with fifty thousand dollars in a Venmo account, and they give it all away. Like, what what do they actually do in those situations?
1: Yeah, it's a little challenging. I talked uh, my friend uh, Miles that we talked to on the podcast uh, needed a, a liver transplant, um, and so you know he did a GoFundMe, and we put it on his taxes. Uh, in a disclosure that said, like, hey, this person got 61000 blah, 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 and we're not considering it taxable income because of this, but I didn't want it to look like we were hiding it. So I, I like, openly told them, like, hey, there's a bunch of money that's not on here. This is exactly how much it is. Um, and we've had similar issues with clients' uh, getting money for kickstarter the the IRS defaults to saying everything is income if it's a, a venture that could potentially be for profit and i think that's a very much leaning towards the IRS's benefit of that take
2: yeah i'm i'm curious i'd be curious if they've had any like big meetings on nfts at the IRS they're like sitting around a conference room table like trying to figure out what to do about it there's Cause...
1: just a lot of like so it's a what
2: <laughs> They're paying what for what? But what they do you get what? get?
1: what do you get? <laughs> what are you holding at the end? Um Yeah. Uh like I said, I really enjoyed your book. So the book is future proof. Uh you know, my uh yeah, what what's your what's your log line for it?
2: It's a survival guide for humans in the age of AI. Um that's that's my my shorthand. Which makes it sound a little more like self-helpy than I think it is. Um the the book is sort of two books in one. There's like the first half, which is kind of the diagnosis. And it's my attempt to sort of puzzle out like what is actually happening with AI and automation? What's hype? What's real? What's overly optimistic? What's not optimistic enough? Like what is actually happening out there in the world? And the second half is much more like solutions oriented. It's like, how do we, okay, AI and automation are... Going to challenge us in a lot of different ways at work, at home, in our communities. Like what can we actually do about it on an individual level? Yeah. Um, at one point, and, and, and I should note, it has a starring role from you, from Russ Groffalo. You I are did, that, one of the it, heroes of the book.
1: I, I was honored to, to get that shout out in the book and uh, your TED Talk, which came to fruition uh, during COVID. So, I was wondering if it would even happen. I, I thought I pictured them like mailing you a red circular carpet and you setting it up at home.
2: <laughs> yeah, um, it's weird. I st- started strutting around with a lavalier mic in my house and my you know, my wife and my dog are just very confused.
1: Um so in the book, one of the ways of you, you mention of softening the transition of workers displaced by robots and AI uh is by using a big net and small webs. Um, can you talk about those ideas? And and I was curious to hear what you thought of the mo- the recent uh, American Rescue Package uh, COVID plan that just passed. And uh, yeah, the the relationship of those those things you discussed.
2: Yeah. So big nets and small webs are what I sort of call basically support structures for people. So big nets are like the sort of national scale, large government usually government or or sort of quasi governmental programs that can help catch people if they are displaced by AI and automation that can retrain them, that can give them, you know, resources and, and help getting through those periods of transition. Because we know that every time there is a big technological shift, whether it's the first industrial revolution, whether it's the, you know, factory automation of the, of the, you know, mid 20th century, like it, displaces people and, and sometimes lots of them and sometimes for a while. And so we, we need kind of these big nets to sort of catch people when that happens to them. Um, and then small webs are sort of the, the community, the smaller, you know, more local versions of those big nets, which, you know, generally aren't sort of government run, um, you know, national programs. They're, they're things like you know, community groups, they're mutual aid networks, they're, you know, church groups, religious groups, they're, you know, neighborhood associations, they're groups of people, um, you know, who can really help each other on a, on a sort of hyper-local level. Um, and, you know, I, I point to some examples of these throughout history, but it's, it really is the case that like these things matter and and can help people when they're displaced, and so I, um, I think it's really important. As for the the COVID rescue plan, I mean, I get asked a lot about universal basic income, as you can imagine, because um, like you know Andrew Yang sort of made that uh, tied that to automation in a way that really stuck with people, and I think it's a good idea. And I think what we're learning as a result of not just you know this latest rescue package, but the CARES Act you know ppp like all these things that we've seen over the past year is that like giving people money works um it it keeps people out of poverty it really is like a, a an effective short-term you know, like solution to extreme economic need and i think we've learned that it it works we can administer it people really like it um it's more tangible to them than something like a you know a tax cut um People like getting checks. That's like a, you know, thing about human psychology. We like that. So I think that's um something that I hope will not stop um with the end of the pandemic.
1: Yeah, I I I think what just passed is, yeah, by far the biggest uh net that has been put in place, um, you know, maybe other than Obamacare uh in our lifetime. Um there 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 seems to be the the You know, what I what I think is more and more getting disproven that, like, if you give some if you give people a net, like they'll just lay down in it like a hammock instead of jumping out of it like a trampoline. And I think especially like seeing the number of people that relied on unemployment this year um, and use that just to live and you know, kind of had to fight for it or beg for it or, uh, you know slog through some, like, very poorly set up systems and websites. Um, and I, I think that on the low end goes along with what we're touching on earlier, that, you know, when you said the highest income tax bracket should be 99.9%, there, you know, the other end of that argument says, like, well, if we tax money too much, people have no incentive to earn. But I, I think, you know... Uh, you discussed a lot of reasons people were bidding on your NFT, and very few of them were for actual like, "This thing I'm buying is going to be worth more later, and that is going to make me more money, like at a certain at a certain point, and like as you know, uh money becomes more of a, a way of keeping score or a way of saying like, "Hey, people want the thing I'm making." And that is more meaningful, like, it doesn't change your life at a certain point. Um, so the idea that, yeah, if you only get to keep, you know, two cents on the dollar, you're going to stop earning money. It's like, no, it's, it's fun to, like, build something that works and watch it work. Like, if you already have, have everything you want,
2: I mean, there's status yes. in yeah. being... Rich, you know, I, there's a reason that all these, you know, tech billionaires keep working even after they're billionaires. Um, yeah, they could like all they... be retired and on islands right now, um, but they keep working because there's status and worth and, and something gratifying about it for them.
1: Yeah, I, I think I've often thought, like, we're, we're all under the impression when we're stressed out that we want to be laying on a beach doing nothing, and then as soon as I'm laying on a beach doing nothing, like, I'm bored within <laughs> 20 minutes
2: i love the thought of like you in like you know in in some caribbean paradise just like like, daydreaming about like you know 1099s
1: (laughs) i'm like is there can we solve something should we build something
2: um i did a story a few years ago where i am it was called billionaire for a day and i just like i spent 24 hours living like a billionaire so i like Rolls Royce like loaned me like a like top of the line you know car I like flew on a private jet I like went to this club in Manhattan that costs like you know $100,000 a year to like eat breakfast like I did all the crazy like rich people I wore like a $50,000 watch like it was insane and um and it was really isolating like I've really felt like um you're never alone when you're that rich because people you know you have assistants you have drivers you have like you know, concierges, like you just, you, you, um, and again, all this is like not intended to make people feel sympathetic for billionaires. They're fine, but I do think like it can be, um, it can be very stressful. I was talking to like an actual billionaire that day who, whose private plane this was, and he sort of let me on as a guest and I was just asking him like, you know, are you, happy <laughs> like does your life is your life better than mine and um, you know he said it makes certain things easier like you don't have to go through airport security like it definitely like saves you time but like it introduces whole new categories of things to worry about like are my kids gonna be spoiled you know obnoxious rich kids um that's something that you know a lot of people um in that wealth bracket worry about
1: uh, in the book, you mentioned how the future, as the future takes holds of our our lives, will it will become more about arguing the fairness of algorithms um, we live by. Uh, you, know, you mentioned several systems that are automated, whether it's unemployment or housing vouchers or um, and that we'll have to learn how to interact with them and argue the fairness. Um, do you think of this as different or... Uh, similar to like the way colleges have you know uh, for a long time been manipulating their rankings in the college world um, and also how you know booksellers can manipulate the best sellers list um, are are those kind of along the same continuum or uh, are are there stark differences
2: yeah, I think that 's part of the same I mean we shape our behavior around machines all the time right i mean there have been um studies of sort of how people change the way they talk when they're talking to alexa or siri they like use different syntax and cadence and it's like we are adjusting to them um and you're starting to see some of that happen in sort of workplace ai now um you know a, uh, a funny story i heard a little while ago is that people had started um putting words on their resumes in like white type so like totally invisible but they oh, would that's put so like funny. Harvard like you know <laughs> <laughs> like Oxford like they would just have like a whole row of like prestigious schools so that the automatic resume screening that's algorithms so would flag them and pass them on to the next round and i think ultimately like the companies that make that resume screening software like got onto this and like fixed it so that it no longer works but like that kind of stuff is happening all the time um, especially in like the service industry, like customer service, like those people are so constantly evaluated by algorithms. And I think that kind of like algorithmic supervision is gonna come to a lot of our jobs. Um, it's not just gonna be retail and call center workers, it's gonna be journalists, it's gonna be, you know, it's gonna be people in law firms and doctors' offices. Um, if it isn't already. It's interesting, like like I've started calling this bossware. It's like there's a lot of sort of surveillance software for remote workers. And because like, I think a lot of companies that used to be able to like a lot of bosses that used to just be able to like walk around the office and like peer over people's cubicles and see like, how hard is that person working? Mm -hmm. Like they can't do that when everyone's working from home. So they feel like they need some way to like ease their own mind about like how hard people are working or like, is that person actually like, Playing Call of Duty during the workday. Like, how do I figure that out? So they're like installing all these programs to like try to, you know, track what their employees are doing and how much they're at their computer and like where their eyes are focused during video calls and, uh, and crazy stuff like that.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, but I'm, I'm, uh, I'm hoping you're not uh, implementing that stuff.
1: I haven't. I've, uh, this is going to sound bad. I've been looking for it. Um,
2: <laughs> <laughs> the, the one you thing you haven't found I... <laughs> like the right electric shock bracelet yet yeah, for yeah. the, uh,
1: um, it 's just going to be a headband, not obtrusive. Uh, you could do your hair however you want um, no for for me what's been what i 've most missed about going fully remote is that when I worked with people in the Brooklyn office, um, I was much more able to because it was an open office because I couldn 't afford walls or whatever like I could hear when my employees needed me. And I could understand what was going on just from like repetition. Like, I think of it as like I'm doing an improvised scene I've done thousands of times. Like, I can hear intonations, I can hear like kind of quagmire things get brought up, and I could just, you know, meander over there at a time to like diffuse a question or make things progress, you know, in two minutes instead of 10 minutes um to just facilitate those things. And so I have you know we switched to Zoom uh in 2014. Um and I, I I've been looking for a way that I could uh unobtrusively just get quick snippets of like what's going on in these conversations and not um you know even more so monitoring it for the employees experience, because it's like, to be frank, it's easier to get clients than it is to get good employees. Mm. Um, so a lot of what I've been doing the last couple years is trying to figure out how to make it into a better job. And so it's been more difficult to figure out how I can uh, be helpful without being big brothering the situation. And I I haven't discussed it with the people You know, everybody that works here, because to my knowledge, it's not feasible, but like, I'd be curious if, like, if there was a video or audio component that is similar to like a call center where I can just hop into a call and get a good sense of like, hey, what does this person need help with? What are they, what are, what, you know, what should they be working on? Like, what would make this easier for them? Just figuring out how to be helpful without feeling like over controlling the situation or, um, or just making them more nervous because it's like, well, I, the boss might be watching me at any moment. Like, which is, you know, it's just a, it's a very interesting balance to strike. And, and maybe that's why I was attracted to the idea of AI doing it. Because it's, I don't have to worry I'm overly imposing my opinion.
2: Um, right. And you, and you don't boss- want the, like, observer effect where people start acting different because they right. know you're there. Right. Yeah, I mean, but I think you you illustrated sort of the the counterpoint to this, which is that if you do a lot of screening on the hiring side, if you if you are very thoughtful about who you hire, and what skills they have, then you don't have to micromanage as much because then you trust the people that work for you. And I think the problems come in in these huge corporations that maybe they don't even like have humans involved in the hiring process. They're just like screening people automatically, and you get a badge, and it's like off to work. And then you have to find some way to evaluate them, um, because you didn't do the work of screening on the front end. Um, so I think your your way is probably better.
1: You mentioned uh, a Walmart employee uh, who got automated out of a job, uh, Freddie, and then they named the, the, the cleaning robot after him. Um, uh, can you talk like about what you learned, about why it's so difficult to value the positive human interaction we have until it's
2: gone? Yeah. It felt like they loved sad...
1: Eddie more than they realized.
2: Yeah, that was a sad situation. Uh, and it's, you know, there aren't many... Situations in which workers are being sort of directly one for one substituted for with like physical robots because most of that stuff happened in factories forty years ago, but like this, the Freddie janitor robot was really heartbreaking. Um, I mean, I think that this is something I've been fascinated by, sort of in all of the research for this book, is how different the perceptions of what makes a job good are. Um, between how managers view that job and how the people actually doing the job view the job. So like one other example of this much earlier example in the, in the 1930s, when they started um, bringing electricity into factories, um, managers, owners of factories thought this would be amazing for workers. They were like, everyone's going to love this. You know, they don't have to like, light lamps or whatever they were doing before. Like, they don't have to like lug big pieces of steel because now there are machines that can do that. Like, they're gonna love this. This is gonna be amazing for them. We're gonna be heroes for bringing this electricity into the factories. And then they brought the electricity into the factories and the workers were really upset. Um, because it turned out that, you know, the thing that they liked about the job was in part the camaraderie. The like, we're all lugging big pieces of steel together, boys. Or like, you know, we have breaks between big tasks that now with the electricity, we don't have the brakes anymore. So we don't get to like catch up on, you know, how the, how the kids are doing or, you know, like it, it's it, the, the social parts of the job were, were vastly discounted in management's analysis of how that was going to go. And I think managers still do that today. I mean, people, you know, They just don't understand what people like about their jobs. Um, And they assume that, you know, making people more productive and more efficient and uh, more optimized is going to make them happier when sometimes it creates the opposite effect.
1: You kind of mentioned one of the things that I I found interesting reading your book about how much uh, we, we espouse the like productivity. And, you know, that, you know, always productivity is going to lead to more free time and everyone will be relaxing on a beach working two hour days. Um, at, at this point, is that just like a known fallacy and like a cloak behind, you know, like essentially like getting people to work harder until we can completely automate them out of a job um, or. uh, Yeah, I, I think. For me, it was like that aspect of like how many times that gets paraded out with like, you know, of of how often. And then whenever people are called on it, they say like, well, as a corporation, it's our obligation to maximize shareholder profits. So if other people are doing this, we have to do it. It's not even up to us anymore. Um, and then that's like the further, like, Hey, it's not even really my company. It's the shareholders company. And so my hands are tied by the corporate charter. So again, I, I have to, we, we have to maximize profits and humans be damned. It just, it is the way it is. Like is, I don't know. Do you just see that as the current nature of, of, of capitalism and, um, or are, are you finding places where, it's working better regardless of maybe those situations also being there? I mean, I think
2: this is the great paradox of of our work lives is we have more productivity, knowledge, and tools, and research, and, you know, better software and, and stuff than ever, and yet, you know, many of us are working more than ever. Um, and so, you know, I love this sort of, they have this, um, this book released a couple of years ago called Fully Automated Luxury Communism, which I love is sort of like my, my utopian dream is, you know, we just all, the robots do everything. We just make art and play video games all day. And like, you know, life is great. And, um, and that's not what's happening, obviously. In part, I think because a lot of this sort of software we've introduced into the workplace actually makes us less productive. Like I do play a video game all day while I work. It's just, it's called Slack <laughs> and and it kind of sucks and the levels are bad and uh, my boss is on it. Um, but like, I don't think that has made people more productive. I think we're like in a sort of, we're sort of deluding ourselves about what actually makes people more productive at work. Um, I just did an interview with um, this guy, Cal Newport, who just wrote this book about email and sort of its implications and how it's like killing our productivity and making us unhappy. And I think that true productivity, like, you know, is, is what we should be aiming for here. Not like, you know, I'm at the desk all day, you know, give me my, my AI worker credit points and I'll cash them in for script at the company store or whatever. But like, I, I do think that we could be working less and we should be working less. Um, and that is sort of the promise of AI and automation, in the end, is like less for us to do. And that can be a great thing, um, but it requires conscious choices on the part of executives to say, I'm not gonna work people as hard or I'm gonna pay them more, um, or you know, it, it it requires a level of, um, of sort of farsighted thinking, um, because a lot of people are just incentivized to, yeah, maximize next quarter's numbers, um, and there's been some interesting sort of cases in which this has come back to bite people. Like Elon Musk, a few years ago at Tesla, was like really into automating the factories. He like automate he like built these you know new robots that were doing assembly and in, in the Tesla factory. And the robots were like screwing everything up. Like they weren't making their production targets. They were sloppy. like they weren't it wasn't working. And so he had to like essentially fire the robots and like bring back the people. Um so like de-automating and they hit their targets and things went well and so I think I think a lot of sort of a lot of the people with that super short term mindset of like I'm just goosing next quarter's numbers like I think that actually is gonna in some cases turn out to be counterproductive
1: so for, for like a company like Amazon who their allure I think I, I'm kind of not a fan um, but I think they get us to focus on what Amazon is best at. And so like they're, they're really good at offering consumers low prices and, and really so low price and low friction. Um, You talk about in the book and also just in your discussion of like getting off your cell phone and stuff um, of like, like purposely creating friction and, you know, can you talk a little bit about why it's so hard for us to value friction and realize it can be positive and that price, um, while quantifiable and measurable, but it's not the only important thing? It, I, think, I think we get seduced by those ideas, and then we look at the end result, and we're not happy with the end result, even though at each stage we were like, yes, yes, absolutely, yes, faster, bigger, yes, sooner, to my door, yes, and then we look around and we're like, I don't like living here. Like there's nothing, there's no, there's nothing outside.
2: Right. And there's no stores. And yeah, it, um, I get what you're saying. I think there's a lot to that. I mean, one, one distinction I should make here is that like, there's a, there are a lot of categories of life where we actually like really don't want a lot of friction, like, especially in, in a lot of like, People who are not as fortunate as us, like there's no reason they should have friction while applying for unemployment or you know something like that. Um, and so, I think there is a sort of moral imperative to like reduce friction in in those contexts. Um, but I think for for a lot of areas of life, like friction is what generates meaning. I mean, if you think about, if you like ask people what the most formative experiences of their life are, the happy, the most rewarding experiences of, of their life are, like very few people are going to say like that time I got, you know, a, a, a electric razor shipped to my door in, in you know, 26 hours. Um, they're going to say like, I climbed a mountain or I like raised a kid or like these other things that are like very hard. Um, they are almost definitely like not frictionless experiences.
1: It reminds me of this study they did where they wanted to assess the value um, of interrupting pleasurable experiences. So they had people watch their favorite show with commercials and without, and people enjoyed it more with commercials. Because the commercial, it's like, if you're enjoying something, you should interrupt it, feel the spike again of reconnecting with it, interrupt it again, reconnect again, but if it's constant, there's no stimuli.
2: Yeah. I mean, this is a little bit unrelated, but I feel like the pandemic has really like clarified what kinds of friction are, are good. Like I would say like for good reason that this has been like a very frictionless year in a lot of people's lives. Like we got groceries delivered. We like, you know, got food delivered. We got like Amazon stuff delivered like we, you know, we used friction reducing services a lot um, because friction generally involves humans, humans carry viruses. We don't want that. But I think once people get vaccinated and like back out into the world, I think there's going to be a lot of demand for like high friction experiences. (laughs) Like I think people are really starved for, I mean friction is like a weird way to refer to like social connection but like it is that like that's what it is and like i i go to the grocery store every week not because my grocery store doesn't deliver but because it's like the only time i get to like interact with actual humans in like in the flesh and so i go even though it's higher friction it's like but it's it's giving me something beside groceries it's like sustenance we need that and so i think that there's gonna be i think there's gonna be a record-setting year for concerts and plays and vacations and you know church attendance i think we're just so hungry for friction frankly um i don't know
1: um cool uh yeah i appreciate your time
2: always a pleasure to talk yeah, it was to you good talking to you um this is fun. I've never, uh, and and TurboTax would never have had me on its podcast. so... Never. Um, thanks, Russ.
1: Yeah, and we can uh, get together whenever and just talk over. We have a couple options for how to avoid uh, net investment tax.
2: Yeah, that would be good because I need to figure that out because the charity is like, you know, it's, it's burning a hole in their pocket.
1: Yeah, yeah, they must be excited. I imagine that's a huge, huge. Amount they
2: were, of they, they were so confused. <laughs> they were so confused. <laughs>
0: That's our episode. I'm Caroline Craighead. That was Russ Garofalo and Kevin Roos. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time.